You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, y'all. Welcome to another week of the Perth Property Show. My name is Trent Fleskins. Thank you for listening as always. If you have any comments or you just like to show your support, please text us on the website or Facebook page and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. Today, we're going to talk about family trusts, discretionary trusts. Do we actually need them? And to really help that conversation come along today, we've got Carlo Bordy from Bordy & Associates in Balcatta. Carlo, thanks for coming in. Yeah, Trent, thanks for inviting me. Carlo, give us a hand here. Trusts are really something that I think are quite misunderstood. There's a lot of assumptions on what goes on, whether it's worth it, whether it's not. Can we talk about the pros and cons and, and really get an understanding of when it's relevant, when it is useful, when it's not? Okay, trusts are basically described as a discretionary trust, but also interchangeably, they can be called family trusts. The difference in the terminology is simply a slight technicality whereby you make an election and you actually get less beneficiaries that can receive the distributions. But for most people, you can use that word interchangeably. Okay, fantastic. So in this situation with property, especially it's the same sort of thing. It's a trust where we can buy it with a trustee, which a lot of the time we're talking about a corporate trustee, a company, a shell company sort of thing that acts as the trustee for our family trust. And then We can distribute the income that that trust makes with our own discretion within our family or within our our unit. Every trust has to have a trustee and basically the trustee can be either individual or multiple individuals or if you want some extra extra protection, you have a company there that's uh, that's in control of the activities. Is that what you usually see? Is that usually the path of uh, least resistance with property investment? It it really depends. Um, And look, personally, I've got rental properties in my own family trust and I'm simply the trustee. Okay. So the more vulnerable a project is, the more protection you're going to want to have. Mm. So for a simple rental property, you don't have to have a corporate trustee. It's probably an overkill. Cost money to have. Yeah. Yep. yeah. A, a trust is going to cost you, you know, five, $600 a year with it just sitting there doing nothing but being a trustee. Well, that so. maybe that's something that we can lead on to about our pros and cons. So let's kick it off with taking out profits on each project versus retaining those profits on an ongoing basis for maybe retirement or another, another reason. One of the issues with the trust is that whenever a trust makes a, a profit in that respective year, that profit must be allocated and the tax must be paid by the people or the entity that you nominate to be the beneficiary. Now, in English, that simply means someone's got to be shown in the tax when they're receiving this money and they pay the tax on it. And a lot of the misconceptions are that, uh, you know, I've got, I've got 10 kids, I can distribute to my kids and save a load of tax. Yeah, that's true. On the basis that the children are over 18 years of age, so if they're younger than that, they're defined as a minor, you're going to distribute a maximum of $416. Otherwise, um, you're hit with an extensively high tax rate. It's not worth it. doesn't make it viable, It no. sounds like a loophole that the tax office has closed at some point because yeah. a lot of people are still under that assumption that we have a trust so that we have four kids and they can all make thirty-five grand a year and we all save some money. That's yeah. not happening anymore. No, definitely not. And in fact, until a, a minor is over the age of 18, that's when you can start distributing large sums of dollars, obviously. And normally they want to be working for themselves anyway at a higher tax bracket. Well, I mean, you do have, this is the classical example, students. Mm. You've got a student mm. aged uh, 18 to 25. Hopefully they, uh, they'll, they'll finish at 25. Yep. <laughs> but, uh, but ultimately, they are the, the main targets that trustees use. And also now the tax department is targeting because what's happens here is that uh, you might have a son or a daughter who's earning between you know, ten dollars and $20,000 in a small job and uh, they're virtually paying no tax. And, mm. and the next 17000 they're only taxed at $0.19 cents in a dollar. Mm. Now, if you're in a higher tax bracket, you like to distribute to them. 
and that's fantastic and that that's a great strategy however you must also be seen to be physically be paying this money across to them otherwise you're in breach and that causes massive problems so look trusts are great and they can be used great but you have to then abide by all the legislation yeah okay next point they're more cost effective really aren't they than setting up a company but i guess though if you're going to have that corporate trustee which a lot of people do that's still costing you that whole structure anyway isn't it oh look most definitely and and, and really i suppose to answer that question it's best to really describe the two differences between a company and a trust with a corporate trustee yeah basically a company's fantastic when you're when you're doing multiple projects you're turning your profits over you're paying tax at 27.5 percent you get to keep your 72.5 percent of your profits in your company for your next projects yep. great for cash flow fantastic while with a trust you must physically distribute those profits pay a tax on it and then roll it over into the next project mm, whether um, you whether that's a beneficial time for you to do that or not that's exactly right you've got no there is only one way to potentially escape that, and that is for you to then set up another company as a beneficiary yep. to receive a potential component of the distribution. Or all which, of it. Or all of it, yep. certainly. I mean, if you want to quarantine at all and you've got no one else in the low tax bracket, uh, you, you allocate. But, again, the negative with that, there's always positive and negative. The negative with that is that you must physically distribute those profits to the company. You can't yeah. just say, oh, I owe it to you. So is it possible that you, you say, look, a good idea in, in that situation is that you know that you want to take a two-year sabbatical three years from now. However, you know that in the best time in the market to sell your property might be this year. Could you, if you've got it in that corporate trustee or that trust structure, you could add a beneficiary as a company in that trust, sell the property, move the money into that corporation now as a beneficiary, and then three years later, you can draw down those funds and pay, I guess, a, a marginal tax rate from what would be zero given you're taking time off work. You can, and as long as that whole strategy involves a situation where when you take the money out, you're also in a lower tax bracket. Because what happens is when mm. a company distributes the profits, you get attached with that, what's called imputation credits, which means that if the company pays tax at 27.5%, um, you get that credit. But then when you disclose any tax return, if you're in a higher tax bracket, you've got to pay what's called top-up tax. Yeah. So, so to explain that in English, if the company distributes you $75 worth of a distribution, the imputation credits attached to that are about you know, $24, $25. So therefore, you are declaring that you have actually earned 100 bucks. But if you're in a high tax bracket of 47 cents to the dollar, well, the company's only paid 23.5%. percent you are got to make up the difference. Yeah, yeah. So, so if you're going to do that, you better be making less than 27.5% right. tax. Otherwise, you're stalling for no reason at all. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Okay, that's a good point. Let's talk about asset protection. This is something that I think a lot of people get confused about. What are you actually protecting against when you go into a trust and have a corporate trustee? What aren't you protecting against, for example? Well, ultimately, what you're trying to do is protect your own personal assets. So, from well, if you're developing, if you're using it as a development business, you know you don't want things to go wrong on site, and someone could sue the trustee because it's the trustee that gets sued. Yep. So, if you've got a corporate trustee. And if the trustee has complied with all the legislation and done everything right, well, then typically whatever assets are available in the trust is only what's available to be um, taken back by the person. So maybe person we're soon, talking yeah. about public liability and whatnot. Correct. It's like an extension of public liability in that, in that example, yes. But what most people are thinking about, I think, when they're thinking about asset protection is if they can't or pay the mortgage anymore, 
then the bank's not allowed to come and get their family home. Is a corporate trustee still protecting you from defaulting on your loans and the bank's coming after you personally to make good? Unless a bank gives you a loan which is called a non-recourse loan and they typically don't exist anymore. Mm. No, that's not correct. You don't have that protection. Virtually, the banks will, will have you as a guarantor there yeah. and you've got to make good the loan. Obviously, the first thing to do is they're going to sell any assets. And if those assets from the trust don't cover the loan, yep. they will still come after the guarantor. And what else? They, whatever else they've got, your, your, what your it, car in the carport, the family home if necessary. They will normally make sure in their contract that they've got adequate coverage for themselves. Banks are, yeah. are good that way. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's talk about profit distribution just quickly. We sort of referenced it, I guess, but let's really explain how that works. The only reason you'd have a property in a trust is one, if you're going to keep it as an investment property and you've got more than likely, hopefully, a positive scenario where you're making gains. So if you're making a gain, the uh, the distribution can be made to your beneficiaries. The uh, main advantage is that. And if you are making losses, well, then a trust may not be the right structure for you. Yeah. That makes sense. Last point here, flexibility on net capital gain distribution. Ultimately, any venture you go into, especially if you're dealing in property, you'd like to think that at the end of the day, you're going to make money out of it. And that then is defined as a capital gain. That gain can then be distributed to your beneficiaries based on what the trustee determines. If we're talking about a simple rental property that you've held for a number of years, well, then the discount that would apply to that property is the same as if the property was originally owned by individuals. So in other words, in most cases with the current legislation, you begin a 50% capital gains discount. Probably the, the greatest advantage of the trust is that word flexibility in that you can then sit back and say, right, who's in a lower tax bracket? What can I do to minimize my tax? And then put a good strategy in place there. Land tax. Have we spoken about land tax? No, no. Actually, land tax is another issue which we haven't brought up yet. Uh, land tax... In a lot of instances, and this you've got to look at very, very carefully, in Australia, a property cannot be owned by a trust. It's, it's always in the name of the trustee on title. So if uh, you are the trustee of your family trust, you're not going to avoid the land tax because it's still attached to you as an individual. Mm. So what we do is we put a company there, and uh, the company then gets assessed on the land tax. But again, you've got to look at the, the merits here. You've got to set up a company. You've got to maintain a company. You've got to pay the cost of the company. Hundreds of dollars a year. Uh, well, you're looking at maybe five, $600 a year in just maintaining a company that does nothing but sit there as a trustee. So, For the purpose of saving possibly hundreds a year on land tax? Well, again, it depends on... I mean, if you've got a, a property that's worth uh, a few million dollars, yeah. there's a benefit there. But yep. for the average Joe Blow... It doesn't normally work. Yeah, it yeah. It doesn't normally work. Makes right. sense. I mean, a lot of people, they, they come to me and they ask, oh, geez, you know, that land tax is starting to creep up. Because it is. The, the government is changing their laws. They're changing the marginal rates all the time. And it becomes more and more expensive for someone to hold the same assets that they had before. Every year, their land tax seems to keep creeping up. How can I not pay as much land tax? Well, really, the only way is to purchase those new properties in different structures but it may not be worth it to do it in the first place. You can't go back and it's no, not really worth selling your current assets to a company because then you're paying stamp duty. Not only stamp duty, there's also capital gains potentially if you sell a property mm. that's worth more now than what you originally bought it. So I think once the deed's done, you don't look at that and, yeah. and change it because you're going to raise a whole horn and of costs there. Yeah. Is there merit in looking at for future projects? Possibly, but in 90% of the cases, it normally doesn't value add to your scenario because of the other costs. Not worth it, yeah. No. Let's talk about the cons. Rental loss quarantine versus negative gearing. So we're talking about most people, obviously, they buy an investment property, they want their negative gearing benefit. Is that even available with a trust? Trusts have got all the same entitlements of the same expenses and deductions that relate to an individual. The only negative for trust is that if a property is negatively geared, and that basically means is it making losses, yeah. and the losses are actually increased by 
couple of categories which is called special building write-off and depreciation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are non-cash items. So when you buy a house, there's obviously carpets, curtains, light fittings. And yeah, depreciation stuff reports. A lot yeah. of people rely on them yeah. to bring yeah. their negative gearing into play. Well, that, that, that increases your negative gearing without physically costing you money every year to spend money on. So, yeah. Yeah, most, so if a trust makes a loss, unfortunately, that loss is quarantined and you can't get your hands on that until the trust physically makes some sort of gain. Yeah. And the only way you can make a gain is by the property becoming positively geared and or you sell the property and make a, a capital gain. Next, whilst it is cheaper than a company to set up, it's still more expensive than just buying it in your own name. In relation to structures, companies are the most expensive, trusts are the second most expensive, and then you get down to your partnerships and sole traders. So as an individual, certainly the costs are, are minimal because you've you got all the legislation you don't have to comply with. Uh, it's simply you, you disclose your bottom lines and... Uh, it's a lot, it's definitely a lot cheaper vehicle. But when I say a lot cheaper, you're probably looking about if an individual had a rental property in the return, it probably cost them a few hundred dollars to do the return. Compared to a trust, it might cost them, you know, seven, eight hundred dollars to do. So, you know, two to three times more the cost. But yeah. you've got to look at are the benefits ultimately going to be there? And if they're not, well, then you've got to really consider is the trust going to work for me in the long term? Or is it just a good idea that my mate was doing? And yeah. 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 Unfortunately, bar talk doesn't always work. Yeah. You've got, to, you've got to really look at every scenario and determine whether that is the right structure for you. I, I agree. Lastly, obviously, these deeds, they, they refer to legislation, national le- legislation. Legislation can change over time and those deeds can then become defunct or you know they need updating. Trust deeds normally need revamping every seven, probably seven or eight years. Something comes into play with the tax department and we need revamping. I mean, the classical example is before companies were taxed and there were no such thing as imputation credits and franking credits, trust couldn't cater for those because they never heard of them. Uh, one stage, no one knew what capital gains meant, so trust didn't cater for them. So mm. every time there's a legislation change that affects potential things the trust is doing, then the deeds have got to be revamped. And, and that costs money. Oh, look, it does. And look, we're not talking big dollars, but maybe, you know, depending on the age of the trust, the amendment for that year would be between two to four hundred dollars, yes, correct. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, well I think we're out of time today, Carla. Let's just recap. In terms of our pros, obviously we're looking at profit distributions, flexibility on net capital gain distributions. It's more effective than just buying something in a company. You've got some asset protection there, but there's a caveat in that you're not protecting yourself from the banks the way a lot of us think we are. And also it can really be worthwhile if we're taking the profits out as we go. If it's not then maybe a company is the way to go. On the con side, it is still more expensive than buying it in your own name, especially if it's not really necessary to do so. And if we're looking for a negative gearing strategy or if, if negative gearing is a reality for us, it can get in the way. Is that, that a good summary? Absolutely. But the most important thing is you just got to really look at everyone's scenario independently and determine what you're doing, what you intend to do and, and uh, what the potential negatives could be. Yeah. Carlo, thanks a lot for coming in today and I hope we can have you in again another time. Most certainly. Thank you for asking me. Okay. Connie Hancock from Cape Horn Young has just stepped into the studio. She is Fremantle's number one real estate agent. Connie, thanks for coming in to chat Freo. Oh, Trent, thank you for having me. It's uh, lovely to be here and I'm uh, grateful for the invitation. No worries. Hey, let's get talking about one of the coolest slash strangest slash most independent suburbs we have in Perth, most iconic suburbs. It's got its own brand, really, its own lifestyle. Let's imagine most people don't know about Fremantle. What sort of people were moving into Fremantle decades ago and how has that changed over the last 30, 40 years to today with people that are buying off you? Where I'm very fortunate is that I've been living in Fremantle for about 30 years. Uh, I actually grew up uh, in the area um, 
I won't tell you how long ago, but yes, so I'm very familiar and I'm a bit partial to the area. Um, it has changed considerably in the 30 years that I've been there and I've actually been selling specifically in Fremantle for about five years. And even in those five years, I've seen changes. The history itself, clearly 1829 when Captain Stirling hit our shores, the city of Fremantle was actually named by James Stirling because the captain of the ship of the HMS Challenge was Captain Fremantle. So that's how we got our name. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, there you go. It was declared a city in uh, 1929. So we've got our own, uh, we can call ourselves a city of Fremantle. As far as the history goes, clearly we've got the Roundhouse, which is very, very popular. Got the Fremantle Prison that used to house convicts from 1850 through to 1991. Now you can have some fantastic night tours there, day tours. Uh, they're spooky, got, those night tours. I've yeah, been on one. Yeah, they are. They are. You have to go down lots of stairs and things like that, so it can be a bit creepy, but very, very popular. Clearly, with the history, that's what's very charming. And also, we're very fortunate with the Victorian architecture that we've got. And one thing that I'm really looking forward to talking about is the West End of Fremantle, where Notre Dame has improved Fremantle by working on the historic buildings and bringing life with overseas students frequenting the university. So we're very fortunate in that regard. So I'm looking forward to telling you a bit more about that. Yeah, well, the one thing that I notice is just the building material changes the second you hit the city of Fremantle. We're working with limestone blocks. Yes. You don't see a lot of that these days. No, that's that's right. They're very protective of their heritage buildings. So clearly there isn't a lot that we can do with the ex- exterior of buildings. But once you step inside, there's a lot of hidden secrets in behind these historic buildings. Uh, there's a lot of warehouse conversions in the West End. What I'm finding is that uh, the creation of what some buyers have done, owners, it's it's just amazing. You walk past, you don't even know that they're there. Must be pretty expensive, some of these. Look, price ranges do fluctuate quite a bit. I have sold from about 350000 in the West End through to $2.7 million. Yeah. So it does vary quite well, significantly. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. What sort of people are buying in Fremantle uh, these days? Are they young couples? Are they? Uh, do they have a specific... Uh, uh, likening to the lifestyle of Fremantle or is it a proximity thing? Are they old couples downsizing? Who's getting in? Who's buying from you? Well, what I'm finding is that um, there's a lot of childless uh, couples that are coming through, uh, professionals. Yep. Generally, the age is probably... Um, mid-30s through to mid-40s. They're probably people who can afford Fremantle. Yeah, look, pretty much, I would say. They're generally professional couples. They've had 10 years in the in, in work. Correct. They've got a bit, maybe it's their second home or they've saved yes. for a long time. Uh, a lot of them are their second homes yeah. and they're generally professional couples. But I am seeing lots of downsizers, empty nesters, where they've come from the big homes, the four or five bedroom homes and the western suburbs or even through uh, the eastern suburbs where they just want to downsize and be able to put their keys on the table after work and just be able to walk everywhere on their doorstep. Now, I've sold several properties in the West End to couples that have done that. They're still working, probably got about five years left, but they're just already getting into Fremantle and getting used to the lifestyle. Well, I guess a lot of them are looking for a sea change, aren't they? Absolutely. We haven't even spoken about the Indian Ocean. No. And look, there's Fremantle. I am partial to it, but it has so much to offer. We've got 
Bathers Beach, we've got the Fremantle Fisherman's Harbour, we've got the Fremantle Esplanade, we've got parks, I think there's about 16 or 17 parks throughout. But also the beauty about Fremantle is that you've got South Fremantle, so they've just developed South Terrace, that looks unbelievable. You've got South Beach, Ray Avenue Precinct, which is a walking distance from Fremantle. That's got the iconic Galati store, which I'm sure some people, uh, many people know of. It's been there for over 50 years. There, they were originally greengrocers now, you know, fruit and veg, uh, open seven days a week, gourmet. There's cafes, retail shops. It's absolutely buzzing. It's just gorgeous. And you can just walk to everything. I drive to Fremantle for my favourite hot dog at Run Amuck Hot Dogs on in oh, South well, uh, Fremantle. There and that's a drive given that I live in the city. Yeah, that is very popular. And it, you're, that's not the only one that's very... There's so many... I. I could rattle off a, a yeah. dozen places. But so it's a I'm, lifestyle choice is what we're saying. Absolutely, absolutely, where they want to walk out their front door, either cross the road and go to the beach or walk into town. That's that's what it, it's all about, lifestyle and um, sea change. All right, so if I want that lifestyle and sea change and I want that solution to be Fremantle, yeah. what options do I have in terms of housing and what am I paying for it? Okay, there are a lot of developments going on in in terms of apartment living. There are quite a few going up. There's been one almost completed in South Terrace, in South Fremantle. You've also got the live apartments in Queen Victoria Streets that have been completed and almost sold, completely sold. Of course, you've got the wool stores. Mm. That has been an amazing development. It's uh, about 150-odd apartments in there. They look cool. They they do. They're very mm. cleverly done in that they've they've retained the external building, the historic part of the old Dalgetty wool stores, but internally the way they've designed it, you don't feel like you're in amongst over 150 apartments. It's beautifully done and you are walking distance into town. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So you're starting off at that apartment living. What are we paying for that? Look, they start from about 350 going through to about uh, just under a mil. Yeah. There was a time probably two years ago where they were over a million, some of those. Clearly the market has changed. I think in Fremantle you need to play the long game. As far as residential homes where you get four or five bedrooms and a bit of land, not as common in Fremantle proper, but surrounding suburbs such as East Fremantle, North Fremantle and South Fremantle, you would find that. And also in that Ray Avenue precinct that I mentioned earlier, there are still some residential homes there where you get three to four bedrooms. What could you get in for on a townhouse level can you get in under a million dollars in these areas? Yes, you can. Yep. I've actually got one at the moment that it's in Fremantle proper. That's sort of going to be around the 700 mark. Okay. It is a two-bedroom, two-bathroom. Once again, not family homes, but you can still get those, but you are looking at over the million-dollar mark and for those. And these could go even further, couldn't you? As you said, you, you saw for 2.7 yes. in the west end of Fremantle. Uh, yes, I I wonder I what it would be like on the river in East Fremantle and whatnot. Well, well, I actually live in East Fremantle. I've been there over 30 years. And, but I'm on a huge block. I'm just under a 1,000 square metres, so okay. I'm one of those empty nesters where my children are off my hands, yeah. as much as I still love them, but they are off my hands. Um, and so my husband and I are on a, a huge block with a, a large house, so really we're, we're looking to downsize, and Fremantle is my choice. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Okay. We, I guess we're segueing into that development style. You just spoke to me about a property that's nearly a 1,000 square metres. I look at that and go, ooh, development options. Yeah, what that- can you do around Fremantle? 
Well, they, they're surrounding suburbs, so in Fremantle proper, there probably isn't a lot that you can subdivide. It's mostly been done already. It's mostly been done and lots of apartment buildings. Heritage listings. Heritage listings, you are restricted. So the main development is in the West End where those heritage buildings are being almost gutted from the internals yep. and working outwards, so you keep the facade. They look amazing. The development is probably more uh, on the outer suburb of like East Fremantle, uh, South Fremantle, not a lot left in South Fremantle, and there are some big blocks left in North Fremantle. When, when I look at the developments there, what, a couple of things I notice is people are generally going to two storeys and they're generally using cool custom build designs. You don't see a lot of project builds going around Fremantle and their perimeter. People seem to, as much as you might not get as much granular data and what these things may be worth, it all, almost seems like the more you stray away from the norm, uh, the more that you're actually going to get that interest because there is something different and people in that area like to be different, in my understanding. That's about right. It's, it's a good summary that you've actually uh, put there, Trent, because what you've got, Fremantle is very eclectic. The Fremantle Council is also quite strict with what you can, what mediums you can use. But that's what Fremantle is all about. There's modern, there's historic, there's a blend of both. Um, I think that's the key. It's the blend of both. Yeah. It's it's keeping in keeping with the history of Fremantle, but putting a cool warehouse spin on it, or uh, very interesting building mediums, uh, you know, big pillars and posts and and rammed earth and things like that. You don't see that in many other places. No, that's right. That's right. And and really, I I know I keep going back to the West End, but that's where I've sold quite a bit in my career, and what I've seen there, it never ceases to amaze me what people have done. And it really is, it's, it's, it's just stunning. It really is stunning. Do you think to be a developer of Fremantle, you need to have a few years of experience living in Fremantle to understand what people like? Or is it easy enough to get granular data off RP data and try and uh, reverse engineer what's going on? Yeah, look, it's proven that they're already doing developments there and multi-dwellings. They are quite common because what they're trying to do is get buyers in that will want to downsize into apartment living. So they're doing one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom apartments. Mainly two by two is the most popular and they're also affordable. Do you have to uh, live in Fremantle to experience a lifestyle? Not really. Okay. And the final question I'll have to you, which is the same question I ask every single number one agent every week, Connie, is... What is the median house price of Fremantle? It might be a tough one given there's so much variety to, to offer, but let's get that number. And if you had that in your pocket, what would you buy? Look, the median price at this stage is at about $785,000. Um, there's been a growth of about 7% in the last five years. And there is going to be an injection of uh, about 1,200 workers once the the huge development of King Square, which should be finished in about 2020. Well, that just to digress for a second, yeah. isn't that fantastic to hear about a suburb that has actually gone up in value yeah. since the since the boom, right? Uh, we totally. always hear about everyone losing 20, 25%, and yeah. that is a reality. 50% in some suburbs, 70% right. in the Pilbara. Yeah. But Fremantle, a lot of those suburbs coming out of Fremantle, uh, Warwick, Duncraig areas, these areas haven't actually lost. They've made a gain in those times. You don't hear about them. No, no, it is it is quite good. Look, we've had we've had some tough times, but it's certainly picking up, and there is a bit of excitement around Fremantle at the moment. And with you know having two hundred and seventy million dollars injected into the King Square development, that is going to just 
revitalise once again Fremantle, which it needs, which is great. All right. So I did sidetrack you for a second. Tell us Where your choice. Where am I going to Where buy? are you going? Where are okay. you moving? Look, pretty much when you buy in Fremantle, you don't want to have gardens, swimming pools. You want to just be able to lock and leave, mm. but have the room. I would probably uh, try and find something uh, in the Ray Avenue precinct or uh, South Terrace or um, the West End would be my pick. So a downsizer pick, something maybe nice and funky, clean, pretty yeah. new, next to that walk score with all the really nice cafes and restaurants. You just want to be able to walk everywhere, Trent. That's what you want to do. That's Fremantle. That's Fremantle. Connie Hancock, thanks a lot mm. for your time. I appreciate it. And I'll hopefully have you in again for an update in Fremantle sometime in the near future. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, Trent. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!